I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Craig Hoffman with you on Overtime here on 106.7 The Fan. We've got a stacked hour for you here. Some commander slash commanders talk coming up uh, over the next segment or two. Uh, Jerry Brewer wrote a really interesting column in the Washington Post about team building that I think is interesting and worth looking at through the eyes of the commanders uh, here in a few minutes as well. And then... uh, the W season starts on Friday. Mystics look like they could be a really, really good team. And there's some also some interesting stuff happening in that league, league-wide. I want to talk about that with Kareem Copeland, my good buddy, former beat mate uh, on the Commander's Beat. Uh, he's now writing about the Mystics for the Post. We'll get to that coming up at 7.45. Uh, and then, of course, 8 o'clock, uh, we just have a quick, quick reset for you before we give way to Charlie and Dave. They're, of course, out in Denver, uh, Colorado Rockies, Washington Nationals tonight right here on The Fan. Um, take your calls now, though, on this this Commanders, Commanders topic, right? Basically, the premise of what I think on this is that it's hugely problematic how not just that Ron Rivera signed has signed a bunch of guys that you're looking at almost a quarter of the roster with ties back to him in Carolina, but there's substance underneath that. That's problematic too. Like how they look at themselves and what they did, especially in the latter half of uh, the time at Carolina, when Cam Newton was hurt and thinking that they were still on the right track when in fact they were on a track to be fired. uh, That's, that's no good. Um, It also is uh, indicative of the fact that Ron has brought in so many people who were with him in Carolina. Like all the personnel guys, like there's there's very there's not enough, I would say, outside influence at the top of this front office. They brought in, whether it's personnel guys, advisors, scouts, they brought in a lot of people. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So unless part of your quote unquote same thing is finding a way to draft the next Cam Newton and the next Luke Keekley. your plan stinks. Again, I don't think Ron's like actually a terrible coach. Nor do I think these guys are horrible personnel guys. I just think they're really mediocre. If I'm being totally blunt and honest, it's not a reflection of their character. Like, sure, they're fine human beings. At least, I don't know. I don't have any reason to believe that they're not too. Maybe they're not. Maybe one of them sucks. But as far as I know, a bunch of stand-up guys, and that's great. But my job is to tell you what I think of their ability to do their job. And I don't think that they're exceptional at it in any way, shape or form. And so I, it's just hard for me to see them doubling down rhetorically and doubling down personnel wise on the Carolina thing. And to, to have faith that it's going to go in a championship level direction. Uh, let's go to John in Fort Washington. John, thanks for calling. You are on the fan. Hey, Craig, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. My biggest thing is that you got two guys that you say are general managers. We know Ron makes the last decision on it. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, I mean, you draft who you draft. I mean, we don't know. Like with Jamin Davis last year, they drafted him in the first round. And, you know, obviously they took him because they felt they needed a linebacker or whatever like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to take time. You know, you, you very rarely get a guy like Michael Parson that come in and just totally dominate, you know, from right from the jump. But at the end of the day, I, th- I just think that they're just too sensitive to criticism. And to me, that shows a lack of confidence in what you're doing. 
Because at the end of the day, if I'm if if I chose someone and I felt that you know I did my background and I you know research and again it, it's based on your program. You know what what that person could do within your program. So regardless if you know uh, uh, Dotson was the fifth receiver or the tenth receiver, if you feel as though he's capable of coming into your system and contributing, then you shouldn't be sensitive to that. As well as the second round draft pick from uh, Alabama, the defensive lineman, or the third round draft pick, the running back from Alabama. At the end of the day, you have to have confidence in the fact that you've hired guys to do a job. And if they're not doing their job, then that falls back on you, but you shouldn't be sensitive to it. That's all I really had to say. John, I appreciate that call a lot. Thank you. Um, I, th- I think that's, there's some good points there. I, I guess I just, I'm a step beyond that to a point. Like, I want to circle back to the substance of what he's saying, too. Because I think there's some there's like a really important point in there that Logan actually talked about a lot um, I, when I heard it uh, when he was on with Russell the other day on 980. But um, I'm sure he's made it anywhere he's been talking. Um, but I'm at the point where like I've not just seen this for three years. I've seen it for eight. I've seen it for 13 if you want to count the, the full like 10 years or eight years. Whatever Ron was in Carolina. Whatever that math is. Right. And I'm just like. He's it's like he can have confidence, but I don't have like super high confidence in him. Which, by the way, I don't expect Ron Rivera to if he's driving around listening right now. Hi, Ron. Um, I don't expect him to be like ah, that Craig Hoffman. He's really got me shaken to my core. Like no, Ron's been in the NFL thirty years. He's dealt with people way dumber than me and people way smarter than me. Um, and he about football definitely knows a lot more than me. Um, on like a a minutia level, right? Like I can't go in and design a defense. I've never put together a practice plan. I've not done any of that stuff. But what I have done is cover cover the league, talk to other people around the league, and watched the results play out on his teams. And the results are eh, underwhelming. Not terrible. Which, by the way, is the hardest evaluation. It's so easy to look at Ben McAdoo and be like, <laughs> he sucks. Like, he's not very good at being an NFL head coach. He might be a good OC. Probably a really good quarterbacks coach. A lot of people like Ben McAdoo around the league. But, like, as a, as a head coach, not good. Results are in. No bueno. You know... The hard ones are the guys who are in the middle. Are they good coaches being drugged down by inferior talent and bizarre circumstances? Or are they bad coaches being elevated by good talent? And or are they just like mediocre? Are they just like some some days they're good, some days they're bad, some game plans are good, some game plans are bad. Sometimes they're right on talent, sometimes they're wrong, but the percentages are not what you need to do to win consistently in the NFL. That's that's kind of the question. And so, to John, the caller's point, and again, if you want to call in, 800-636-1067, by all means, lines are open. Literally all of them. Uh, but to John's point, You've got to look at how these pieces fit within your program, not how they exist in some vacuum, how they exist on the, the consensus mock, right? You take every all 50, 100, 50, 11 mock drafts that are out there. Let's average them all out. Uh, that player was 35 on the average mock, and we got him at, at 48. What a steal. Or we, we took him at 28. How could we reach? Well, maybe that was being influenced by the fact that the seven teams in the middle all played a 3-4, and you're, we're talking about a 4-3 end, right? Like, there's just, there's stuff like that that you got you to gotta judge. Like, Mathis, a second-round pick, like, that dude fits what Washington does. He can play some nose. He can play five technique. He can play three technique. Run stopper, whatever his traits are, is what they want out of that position. So you take him. 
the only downside to that is value. You like you do have to understand what the rest of the league is doing because if you can get that guy and another guy by taking that guy later, that's a miss. But like yes, you do need to get guys that fit your program, that fit your team needs, that fit your scheme, that fit the personality of your locker room. But if the personality of your locker room is not that great, if your scheme is lacking, if what you're looking for exists because you've managed your roster poorly and had to cut good football players or not pay them and let them go, well, then you're probably not going to win at a consistent level in the NFL. Uh, more calls up next. Joel, hang on. I'll get to you right after the break. And anyone else who wants to chime in on this, 800-636-1067, 800-636-1067. Craig Hoffman with you tonight on Overtime. Craig Hoffman with you. It's Overtime on 106.7. The fan, Kareem Copeland, joining us at quarter till. Shows till 8.10. Slick Vic Ferreira's in the control room, which means the Nats must be right around the corner. Uh, they come up at 8.10 tonight. Charlie and Dave will take our coverage from there. Right now, talking the commanders Commanders connection. Big deal? Not a big deal? You got other things about this roster that are more concerning to you? Uh, let's go to Joel and Leesburg. Joel, thanks for calling, and thanks for holding through the break. You are on the fan. Craig, thanks for having me. Great show, as always. Thank you. Um, You know... To your point, exactly. I mean, Ron had one great season in Carolina in a, you know, particularly not great NFC division. If you really look back, you know, till recently with New Orleans and Tampa Bay kind of having resurgences. And, you know, again, Daniel Snyder, the big shiny coach goes out and get him. And here we are, a guy that, you know, hasn't been able to change the culture because we all know the obvious is the, the core issue here. But I'll even go further, like, related to this point about Carolina, but we keep wanting, like I told your call screener, to draft Alabama players. And it's like, Alabama players are great because Nick Saban gets great players, he knows how to coach them up, and Alabama has a great football culture. But Washington hasn't had a good football culture in 40 years. And just like this point about Carolina, we're going to bring those guys and they're going to come here and going to bring Alabama guys. We're going to be great. It doesn't work that way. You got to have a culture and a tradition and all those little things. We don't do any of the little things. Right. And then just kind of on a final point, not take up all the air in the room, you know, Ron doesn't have like a coaching tree. Like I think me and you're about the same age. I'm 38. So like growing up, it was like Bill Walsh and Mike Holmgren and, you know, Mike Shanahan in the early days when he could, like, be cognizant of what was going on in the field. Like, Ron Rivera doesn't have that, never had that. It was, like, one good year, like you've already said. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm a little little younger than you, but not close enough that we have that same thing where, I mean, literally, you can... Tr- there was a point a couple years ago, I think it's a little more diverse now, but not by much, but there was a point a couple years ago where you could very easily trace literally all 32 NFL coaches back to, it was Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells. Every single person was had coached under them or coached under, under someone, uh, or someone who coached under them. So like either they had directly coached for Bar- Parcells or Walsh, or they had coached for like Belichick or Andy Reid, um, who were on Bill Walsh or Bill Parcells' adjacent staffs. It's a little more diversified now. And, like, you have guys like now Kevin O'Connell is obviously the head coach, and, like, he played under Belichick and technically coached under Gruden and McVay, but, like, it's kind of because he was out of options. He didn't really come up in that as a coach. He, he I mean, his first coaching job was given to him by Chip Kelly, who was a complete outsider because he was coming from college. Um, But, yeah, I, I think that the lack of folks who have gone on outside of Sean McDermott, who, by the way, like McDermott leaves Carolina and things start to go downhill a little bit. But even in Carolina, like Ron Rivera had three winning seasons in Carolina. 
three. He was there from 2011, where he went six and 10. 12, they went seven and nine. They go 12 and four in 2013. Seven and eight, seven, eight and one the next year. 15 and one the next year. Go to the Super Bowl. Cam's MVP. They lose to the Broncos. Six and 10 the following year. 11 and five in 17. Then he goes seven and nine, five and seven, and gets fired after week 13. Like, that's not exactly a super stellar resume. I will say on the Alabama thing, one, the Alabama thing started under Kyle Smith and the previous front office, and they did a great job with that. And I think they, there's obviously some guys like Sean Deon Hamilton didn't really work out, but like they took a, that, that happens. He was a fifth round pick. The thing with Alabama is they got the best players, so draft them. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to say, like, of course, they bring in John Allen to try to change the culture, and John's done a good job. They bring in a guy like Terry McLaurin, who also is a culture changer, and they, they've tried to this year draft a bunch of team captains, which a lot of teams have done in the past to, to great success. You bring in leadership type of guys um, from good programs, and you're going to get ultimately a culture shift over time, and also those are the best players. So I have a little less of a problem with that, but, I mean, the 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 continuance of what has been, I think is, is telling in a way that I don't know that a lot of fans necessarily realize. Uh, let's go to Aaron in DC. Aaron, thanks so much for calling. You are on the fan. There we go. Got you up now. Uh, Aaron, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you for having me on. So I'm a little bit on, on the fence with Ron. And I, I say that because there are certain players that they seem like they did develop. They developed a couple of the wide receivers under his purview. They developed a quarterback. They developed uh, McCaffrey into a dynamic player. And and if you look at the types of players that we're bringing on board in, in Washington, I think that we have guys that are not turning the ball over. So with the new running back that they're bringing in, they're bringing in a wide receiver that can catch a ball. If you, if you think back about all of the passes over the middle that were dropped by um, Sims, the, the smaller wide receiver that was fast and Steve Sims, yeah. blocked by Carter. If we have people that are making those plays, we're getting a lot of chunk plays. And then if we have somebody that's in between the 20s running the football that's not putting it on the ground, um, that's a substantial improvement. And then last point about Wentz. So if you look at his turnovers versus the turnovers that were made by Heineke, that's a substantial difference. That in itself, um, by not turning the ball over as much, will put us in a chance to try to win. So I'm I'm on the fence of giving them the benefit of the doubt in time. I don't think this is a three-year build. I think it's a five- to, to six-year build. And if we get those dynamic players in space, catching the ball, McLaurin and all those guys, um, maybe we can find a way to use uh, Gibson more like a Debo Samuel. We, we could have a dangerous football team. Ryan, I, the thing is, like as harsh as I've been, I feel like I've been super negative today, I don't disagree with you. Or uh, Aaron, I don't disagree with you. Thanks for the call. Um, like I think there's a path for this team to be to be good. I th- I think that there is a path that they're on that actually suggests for the first time in this Ron Rivera era that they have a plan. I actually see the vision. I said this on Monday when I was doing the show. Like. I actually see the vision for the first time. I actually don't think the quarterback is necessarily the right fit for that vision, which brings us to the Jerry Brewer piece that I want to talk about as well. But I do actually see like size, speed, physicality as some traits that are starting to finally show through the roster and the draft picks and 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 all that. Like I actually I get it. Um I will say to one thing that that Aaron said though, you don't get 5 to 6 years in the NFL cuz you don't need it. Because by the time if if you take 5 years to build, the, your draft picks for the first from the first draft are already on their second contract. You got to be able to add, you got to build a boat as you're in the water. And really, I mean even 3 Three years is like, that's, you should be able to turn over your roster. I know that this team was a three to five year rebuild, maybe to get a championship. That's why this year is so important. If you don't make the playoffs this year and have an upward trajectory, serious, serious questions about whether or not Ron Rivera is the right guy to be building. But he's still got a chance. Like, 
last year was a setback, but like that a setback in the same way that Gruden had a setback in year two. Like 2015, they won the division. And it was it, they won it too early, and expectations got out of control. He was never able to turn it back around. We'll see if Rivera can. Um, all right, Ryan in the control room. Should we take Ryan and Sterling now, or should we hold him through the break? I think we have time now. Uh, let's go. Let's go to Ryan and Sterling. Ryan and Sterling, you've been blessed by Ryan in the control room. So uh, thanks for calling. You're on the fan. Appreciate for taking the call. Uh, so I think I had a theory about maybe a little bit of the disappointment regarding the first round pick amongst the fans is maybe what we could have gotten if we stayed at 11. I think Kyle Hamilton is was one of the top prospects in the draft. I think he was maybe the number one player in the draft. And I think he's going to be a Hall of Fame player in Baltimore and prove everybody wrong who didn't take him. Um, I like the value that we got for trading out, though. And I think Dodson is going to be a okay to good player. But also, I didn't really understand why we were taking a wide receiver. I understand a lot of people were saying that we needed wide receiver, but McLaurin's great, a healthy Curtis Samuel, and a healthy De'Ami Brown. I hear a lot of people are really liking De'Ami Brown when he's healthy, and Dax Milne showed a lot of promise last year. So I, I, I would have loved if we had taken Kyle Hamilton at 11. I Ryan, thanks for the call. I am I am with you uh, that I think I would have preferred Hamilton because I think that this team needs A plus level players, and um, there just aren't a lot of them that to go around. And if Hamilton's one of them, and you miss, like that's a that's a miss. But if you're gonna miss, I'd rather miss at a high floor. I feel like Dotson's a high floor player. I feel like he's good. I feel like he's better than uh, he's better than Deami Brown. Obviously, like Deami Brown was a third round pick. Uh, Dotson's a first for a reason. Um, he's better than Mill and he's better than all these guys. And so like you want those guys as depth and flexibility role specific. Like, can you throw Diami out there where he's not asked to block a, a whole lot and he can go out there and be a rotation guy that you can throw in uh, some deep shots. You can throw in some play actions. You can throw some screens. You can throw the ball over the middle in space, like try to get him the ball where he can use his, his speed. But at the end of the day, like they did need another weapon. I don't mind the receiver thing at all. Um, the question is whether or not they missed on a guy like Hamilton. And is that the kind of move that Ron Rivera is going to make where he would rather play it safe. And eventually you have to take some swings to get players who are great. Luke Keekley and Cam Newton are not just going to always fall in your lap. Everyone knew Keekley was going to be great. Cam was the number one pick and a consensus number one overall pick. They don't have those dudes outside of a guy they got dumb lucky on in the third round in Terry McLaurin. And Trustway. I always feel bad because I always feel like I disrespect Trust. There's only so much impact a punter can make. But whatever that amount is, Trustway makes it. Craig Hoffman with you on overtime here on 106.7 The Fan. When we get back, have the commanders built a roster that a quarterback could be plugged into and all of a sudden you're talking about an instant contender? Not playoff contender, championship contender. Jerry Brewer points out some teams that have gone down this path, and despite what it looks like with the Carson Wentz signing, I actually wonder if this is kind of the secret plan, if you will. I'll tell you, give you more from Jerry's column and tie it back to the Commanders next. Craig Hoffman with you here on Overtime. Greg Hoffman with you for overtime tonight on 1067. The fan, keep you updated, getting you ready for all of the games. Because some games have already started. Carolina just dropped a goal. Not the Panthers. We're done with the Commanders discussion. The, the Hurricanes, the hockey team, they just dropped in an early one. I guess it's not super early. God, there's already 15 minutes gone in that game. At uh, Oh, God, now I'm going to try to do the hockey backwards math. At 13.03 in the first period, someone scored. I didn't see who it was. I just saw that Carolina just scored. They're up one nothing on Boston. Nats and Rockies tonight. Uh, Spirit and OL Rain across the way at Audi Field for the uh, in the semifinals of the NWSL Challenge Cup. Uh, we're just days away from the Mystic season starting. Uh, Kareem Copeland's going to join us to talk about that in ten minutes. But I wanted to to continue on an adjacent Commanders topic, and. It stems from an article that Jerry Brewer wrote that I think is really good, uh, as is typical, because Jerry's brilliant. And 
it talks about team building, which is, is frankly a topic that fascinates me. Um, how NFL teams continue to build teams and how that's changed over the course of years. But the basic premise of this article is that teams outside of the Bengals have really started to build kind of outside in, if you will, as opposed to inside out. And I'm not just talking about the offensive line, like, oh, build through the trenches, right? Because that was kind of the way the commanders built under Scott McLuhan for the year and a half that he was here for the one draft that he ran, two drafts that he ran. Did he run two? Did he run the 60 draft? I think he did. And then he got fired, but maybe it was just 15. I blocked that out of my memory. The point is they took guys up front. They took Brandon Sheriff top 10 overall, but what you see now is teams taking anybody who's great. Hey, who's the best guy on the board? Let's just take him. We need a quarterback. Doesn't matter. Take the good guy. Take the safety. Take the the D lineman. Take the O lineman. Especially take the O lineman. Take the the wide receiver. Don't take the running back till the third round. But pretty much anybody else. Take him. And what we've seen is success out of that. Because eventually, a quarterback... You're, you're ready. You have kind of everything but, and you probably at that point have enough depth and enough good players that you can be willing to trade a first-round pick or two to acquire a quarterback via trade or to trade up and take one as a rookie. And that rookie then comes in, and this is the best way to do it. You get a rookie who comes in, doesn't have to do a whole lot, but can win, gets time to develop while on the job, while winning, and then by the time it's time to pay him, he's really good. Call it the Russell Wilson method. Call it the, well, that's the watered-down version was the Kirk Cousins method, and then they didn't pay him, and that, that didn't go great. Call it the Josh Allen method. Call it the Patrick Mahomes method. Call it the... Justin Herbert, Jared Goff, and even if it goes poorly, you trade that guy for someone who's better, bleep them picks, and you go win a Super Bowl if you're the Rams. Why? Because they got a bunch of other great dudes. But as long as you can build the team around the quarterback so that when the quarterback comes in, they can be successful Shoot, in some ways, it's why the Jets went to two AFC title games with Mark Sanchez. They had a great roster otherwise. Unfortunately for them, Sanchez never develops, and they can never really get over the top. But you don't know that when you draft the guy. And in the meantime, you made two AFC title games. And so in this quarterback class that was completely underwhelming, as Jerry points out in his article, that it's it should be less surprising that teams are starting to really recognize this. Straight from Jerry's piece in the Post. It's an undisputed principle. True long-term contingent cannot begin until a qualified quarterback is under center. But there's a difference between searching for a franchise quarterback and waiting for a savior. It matters what a team does before that leader materializes, if he ever does, and organizations are showing greater savvy in building around the vacancy. He points to the Bengals as being an exception, although they kind of did both. They got Burrow one overall, but then they had built up a decent amount of assets Obviously, Burrow gets hurt. They stink for an extra year that was kind of unintentional. They get Jamar Chase. They get a couple of other really nice pieces. They finally spend all the money from when they've been saving, and all of a sudden, boom, they're in the Super Bowl. But whether it's Kansas City, I mean, Tampa, it doesn't even have to be a young quarterback. Tampa brought in Brady. (laughs) Same thing. Sure, they had taken Jameis, but it's because they fell into the number one pick. They have spent a lot of other really good picks on really good players. Your Levante Davids, etc. And so that makes me wonder. What is Washington doing? 
And I don't say that isn't like, what are they doing? They're they're going all in signing Wentz. It makes you kind of wonder with the way Wentz's contract is structured, is this what they're doing, but they can't really say it out loud? Because you can't go out publicly and be like, yeah, we don't really care about quarterback. We'll figure it out when we get there. But they could have made moves last year to trade up for Mac Jones. We know they did, in fairness to them, they did try to get Aaron Rodgers. They did try to get Russell Wilson. They also tried to get Matthew Stafford. They have tried to get quarterbacks, which goes a little bit against this theory. But there's also, to a point, they've just been like, we're going to keep building this roster, and we're going to try to get good players. So the Wentz thing becomes a little confusing in that regard of like, you're kind of trying to split the baby because you you cut back on your ability to retain and sign good players because you're taking all of his money this year, but you have given yourself the flexibility moving forward to acquire said quarterback if you feel that the weapons that you've built, adding Jahan Dotson, Brian Robinson Jr. to that mix, say some of these defensive pieces work out, that you all of a sudden have a team that's pretty good all around, and if you can finally get that piece at quarterback, you're ready to take a massive leap into title contention. That should be the plan. I don't know how well they're executing it, but Jerry's column I think was really interesting and worth your time as we try to process this Washington roster build through maybe a little bit different lens. Craig Hoffman with you here on 106.7 The Fan. There's a title contender whose season starts Friday. Their names are the Washington Mystics. Kareem Copeland covers them for the Washington Post, and we're going to talk to him about them next. Craig Hoffman with you on Overtime on 106.7. The fan, our coverage of Nats and Rockies starts with Charlie and Dave at 810. Right now, it is my pleasure to welcome my friend, Kareem Copeland, to the show, Washington Post. Uh, basketball reporter, uh, focuses heavily on the Mystics and will be their beat reporter for that team throughout the season, which starts on Friday. Cope, what's up, bro? Good to talk to you. Good to have you on the radio. It's been way too long. What? Way too long. What's been going on, my man? Oh, Appreciate you, know, you having me. Just just living life out here, doing doing all kinds of stuff, <laughs> trying to stay out of trouble. Sometimes succeeding. nothing to speak of, right? You know, yeah. it's all around here. Yeah. Everybody in the city. So, um, you had a great column today, or a great article today uh, about the the kind of the mindset of this team. Um, last year was so disappointing. Elena Deladon gets hurt. Alicia Clark, one of their big offseason signings, gets hurt. Tina Charles winds up leaving because she just kind of has a bad experience in, in free agency. And now they come back. Elena's healthy. Alicia's almost healthy. Natasha Cloud's still here. Ariel Atkins is a really good player who continues to come into her own. And yet they look back at that 2019 banner when they won the title. And, her, and I mean, Natasha Cloud has a great quote that I can't repeat on the radio, but she's basically like, <laughs> we're not them anymore. Where, What are they now? And, and what is the mindset of this team going into the 2022 season far removed from that title. Well, that's the biggest mindset right there is like, listen, we can't keep talking about 2019. And, and, and it's hard not to do so when you see, you know, so many familiar faces, um, you know, you've got Tiana Hawkins back and, and Tori Kimber Walker's here. And so there's six players, six big contributors off that team that are here. So you instantly start thinking about what they did back then. But it, it's they've evolved from that point. People, Ariel Atkins, Maisha Hines, Adams have different roles from what they were. Um, it, this is a team that can play some defense. I mean, you're talking about uh, Ariel Atkins is the first player in um, in league history to be named to an all defensive team the first four years of her career. Uh, Alicia Clark is known for her defense. Elizabeth Williams, she's going to miss the first couple weeks because she's still finished finishing her stuff over in Europe, but, you know, she's an all-league defender, and Natasha Cloud is one of the best defenders in the league. So they're actually going to be able to play some games um, on that end of the floor, which which sounds a little different because when you think of Aikido, you always think about offense. But I think this year they, they're hoping, long as they say, um, you know, the, after last year and we saw how health can go, uh, if they can stay healthy, they should be a little bit more balanced and have a lot of versatility to be able to play with. 
How good this sounds. So I'm going to ask this question like just in the simplest form. I realize on some <laughs> level it's an incredibly stupid question, but it's also like I'm curious of your answer. Like, how good's Elena still? Because when she's healthy and, and at her best, which we haven't seen in a while, she might be the best player in the sport. She's certainly one of the five best. At this point, coming off these injuries, we saw her in the preseason put up buckets the other night. Like, how good is she? Is she still at that level? That's exactly the example I was going to use. The other night when she made her debut in the second preseason game, uh, what, she scored 21 in under 18 minutes and on, I think, 8 for 13 shooting, 9 for 13 shooting, including knocking down three triples and she just made it look so easy. You know, I think, you know, we all watch enough hoops and sports in general that, you know, you know, the people who are kind of on that elite level, that different level, when they've got it going, they make it look so easy. And that, and, and you weren't thinking about her back. She wasn't laboring to get up and down the court. You know, she was um, banging against Sylvia Fowles in the post, you know, and, and that's, those are the moments that you're like, Ooh, you know, does she need to be careful? Is she thinking about that? You know, when, when, you know, there's a loose ball and everybody's scrambling, you know, is she being hesitant towards that? But the other night she said she wasn't even thinking about the back. And that's when she knows um, that, that things are going well and it's not even an issue. And then she wakes up the next morning and everything's fine. And so I think when she's feeling healthy, she's still one of the most elite players in this league. It's just, a, you know, we just don't know how this back holds up over the course of a season. You know, we just haven't seen it. Uh, they're going to be very careful about that. Like, she's not going to make the trip to Minnesota, which is game two on Sunday, I do believe. Um, she's not going to make that trip. So they're going to load manage for sure throughout the season. She probably won't play, um, you know, when, when there's a tough road schedule where uh, it's, a, it's a quick turnaround, those kind of things. Um, they'll be cautious about that. But, you know, if you can keep her healthy and she – you know, only misses those seven to nine games that they hold her out. You know, she's the difference between this team being a really good team and having the chance to be a really good playoff team and, you know, really having a chance to contend. You know, when she's elite, she makes that team elite. So that's why everybody kind of watches her every move and we ask her every single day, you know, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling now? And she's like, I'm good, I'm good. So there hasn't been any setbacks Um there hasn't been any setbacks since training camp started, but I know they're being super cautious with her. But she's out there banging five-on-five five during practices also. So that wasn't a thing that was happening last year. Yeah, yeah. you believe her Like at this point when she's like, I'm good? Like, Do you think that she's actually out there not thinking about it? Because, like, for instance, Alicia has talked about the fact that that's kind of the last hurdle for her. Like the foot, the, She's coming off a foot injury, obviously, and she's saying the foot is good. The doctor said everything's good. I've done all the rehab. It's strong. But I, I got to get out there where I'm not thinking about it. And, and where is Elena at in that progression? Is, do you think she's actually there? I think Elena, Elena's farther in that progression for sure. Because, I mean, even when you watch them in practice, I think she's kind of gone. I think she has a very good um, process for her just on game days. Like the game days, practice days, she knows exactly what she needs to do. Um, for an hour or so before she gets on the practice court. She goes through, you know, the same warm-up, the same thing every single time. Goes, I think she's, they've carved out a plan over these last, really, you know, two-plus years where she's really comfortable. And, again, I go back to that preseason game. Like, even last year when she came back for those two-and-a-half games, she looked like herself, but there were still kind of moments. And, and, you know, I think she said, you know, you sometimes I have to pick and choose whether to, you know, go after that rebound that might be awkward that she doesn't have a chance to get to that might, you know, end up in a collision kind of a thing. I, I didn't see any of that hesitancy um, in that preseason game. She was just playing. And during practices, she's kind of just sprinting up and down. I don't see any of that um going through her mind of, oh, maybe I not I'm, I might not, I shouldn't bang into Maisha or somebody, something like that. Whereas you can see Alicia, you know, she's still out on the sidelines kind of stretching out that foot a lot. And, you know, she's got a whole process also. You know, she gets done and she's <laughs> she's got this stretch where she's on her back with her feet up against the wall, um, pointing straight up that she does after practices. But you can see she she's, 
it's still on her mind a little bit more than I think um, for Elena. I think Elena's a little bit more farther ahead in that realm. And the fact that she's kind of been, you know, doing this for two and a half years now, unfortunately. Yeah. Mystics open the season Friday night, uh, 7 o'clock tip, I believe, against the Fever at Monumental Sports and Entertainment Arena. Um, quickly, bigger picture on the league. Kind of the story of the day is the cuts that are happening league-wide. And there's a lot of young, talented players that are not making rosters, like high picks that are not making rosters. And everyone's pointing to the hard cap that was negotiated in the most recent CBA. And it's like, yeah, we got salaries higher. That's great. But if the good players cost more, there's going to be consequences for everybody else. And trying to put together these 11-person rosters or 12-person rosters is is becoming a real problem for GMs around the league and you have players that are speaking out because they're like, we just can't have a league. It's not sustainable if our young talent isn't going to actually be on the team, nevertheless playing minutes. So long wind up so so that everyone's kind of on the same page here into a question of what can they do about it, if anything, before going through another CBA, considering they just negotiated one and that's going to be a while. That's the tricky part, and we'll have something in the paper about that, or online, and in the paper about this within the next uh, within the next day or so. But that's the that that's what's hard about it is that once you start talking about changing salary cap and that that structure, that's a CBA thing, and so it's hard to adjust that on the fly because yeah, everybody wants to expand expand the number of teams in the league, and that's an easy answer, so you can can get over this 144 spots that are in the league. If and, the, and, and again, that's assuming each team carries 12, where most are carrying 11. The Mystics are only going to carry 11 and shoot. Um, they're already talking about maybe having to get a hardship spot because they might be down to nine people with Elizabeth Williams still gone. And, and depending on when Alicia comes back, and like we said, Elena's not playing in the, game, in the second game. So if you can't, if you can't get another team in here that quickly, then the next logical spot is to start looking at, okay, well, maybe let's expand these rosters. But if you do that, you got a lot for more money in for the cap. And that becomes the issue because with this last CBA, yes, salaries went higher, but a lot of it is being spent on your elite players, the top players in the league. And so, Say you've got, I think Tebow used this example today, you know, say you're spreading most of your money through five players, then you need the rest of the, the other six to be pretty much almost at the minimum, a pretty low on that totem pole when you're talking about um, pay scale. And that's even without having a 12th player. So you can't just add, you know, it, it's easy to say, let's put two more um, spots and make it a 14. Um, everybody can use 14 players, but... Until you alter that structure of how the CBA works and how you have salary cap and all that kind of stuff, you're kind of going in circles and you're not going to improve the situation. And so that's the issue. Can you start having that conversation and making those tweaks before the current CBA is up? Um, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I'm not sure the league is interested in that happening. So it's, it's kind of a weird situation right now because, yeah, I mean, you're looking at the Aces. They drafted, what, somebody 8th and 13, I do believe, and they released both of them. So you're having high draft picks, you know, not making teams, and that's a really strange thing. Alicia Clark talked about it today. She said she had to go overseas for two years to develop before she was able to kind of catch on with a team, and now she's one of the best players in the league. So it's an odd structure as um, – as we say, you know, it's the 25th year of this league, but it is it is still developing in a lot of ways. No doubt. And considering that the owners in the league freaked out when they found out that uh, New York flew private <laughs> last year, it doesn't seem like th- there's certainly some in the league office and in the league ownership group who are not keen on spending more money. So that uh, that's going to need to be rectified for sure. Kareem Copeland covering all things uh, Mystics and and others uh, in the Washington Post. Uh, and, of course, you can check them out, WashingtonPost.com slash sports for the online edition. Cope, uh, we got to, I got, like, we got to talk offline. I got to get, we got to see each other's faces soon. This is ridiculous. I guess I'll see you on Friday at the game. But, like, we got we to gotta do something soon. But that's, that's an offline discussion. Been way too long. Get at me. All right. Sounds good. Appreciate Thanks for, for coming on the do. show. Uh, Kareem Copeland, the great Kareem Copeland with us here on the BetQL guest line. Bet smarter. Beat the books. Download the BetQL app today. All right. Uh, today.
Today is when the Nationals play the Rockies. Ryan, you really enjoyed that, huh? Today! What's that from? What am I even quoting? I have no idea. <laughs> Honestly. All but it's right. funny. Uh, anyway, whatever that was, uh, the Nats and Rockies are coming up. Coverage starts in less than 12 minutes. Uh, other big game in the district tonight, too. Starting lineups for everybody. Next, overtime, wrapping up on the fan. Craig Hoffman with you here on 106.7 The Fan. All right, we got uh, just a little bit of time left in the show. In fact, let's see if I can do the math. We got six minutes on the dot left in the show. So uh, we got a lot of information to get you because we got two games tonight in the district to worry about. One is a tournament semifinal. That's where we're going to start. We'll get to the Nats uh, lineup in just a moment, but... Tonight over at Audi Field, uh, it is O.L. Rain uh, hailing from all the way across the country. Uh, they're based in Seattle, if you don't know, taking on your defending champion, Washington Spirit, in the semifinals of the NWSL's Challenge Cup. And Megan Rapino is back in the lineup, uh, or back in the in the team, as they say in soccer, uh, for O.L. Rain. Uh, she's not starting tonight. She'll come off the bench. Uh, got Angelina, Bethany Balser, Veronica Latsko, Rose Lavelle back uh, in D.C. starting. Jess Fishlock, Olivia Vanderjack, Lauren Barnes, Sam Hyatt, Alana Cook, Sofia Huerta. Uh, Cook and Huerta on the U.S. Women's National Team. And then uh, Tolis Joyce is in net for O.L. Reign. For the Spirit, actually. And these two teams, by the way, Ryan, this is the wacky thing about the season right now and something that just is a big, like, it's a big deal within the sport. And the, actually, a lot of coaches have started to come out and be like, we would like to be a part of future planning because you guys are bad at this. The season opener, regular season, was Sunday. And this is the conclusion of the preseason tournament. That so is. your reward for making the finals of the preseason tournament is you got to play a condensed schedule. you got to play three games in seven days. Not ideal. Not good. Why? Just Why? Because there's some people that are in positions of power in that league who don't deserve to have them, uh, and who have, and that's that's beyond like the absolute illegal level chicanery that happened last year and had been ongoing for a decade. Um, just like we have now rooted out much of the evil, now we need to root out the incompetent. <laughs> that's the next step. Uh, the new commissioner seems smart, but she's been on the job for like a week. She didn't make this schedule. Uh, anyway, for Washington tonight, um, all these most of these players, I think, played on Sunday. It's just a matter of minutes distribution. Aubrey Kingsbury, uh, goalkeeper of the year in net. Sam Staub, Emily Sonnet, Cameron Bielgowski, and Kelly O'Hara along the back line. Bailey Feist, Julia Rodder, Taylor Almer uh, in the midfield, and then Ashley Sanchez, Trinity Rodman, and Ashley Hatch. Your rookie of the year and golden boot winner, respectively, the last two, uh, are rounding out the 11 for Washington. Uh, meanwhile, Nats tonight, uh, they're out in Colorado. Let me get you the Rockies lineup and the Nationals lineup. For the Colorado Rockies tonight, uh, you got Joe batting first in left field. Blackman uh, is the DH. Grichuk in right. Crone at first batting cleanup. Diaz behind the plate. Uh, McMahon is at third. Rogers, Daza, Iglesias, Gomber is the lineup. Of course, Gomber, your left-handed or your pitcher, he's a lefty. On the hill tonight, first pitch at 6.40, or Mountain Time, which is 8.40 in 30 minutes here on the East Coast. As for your Washington Nationals, their lineup looks a little something. Come on Twitter like this. Hernandez at second, Soto's in right, batting second. Bell is at first again. Uh, Hernandez in the DH spot tonight, Franco at third, Thomas in left, Adams Catching Robles in the seven spot in center, Escobar, or sorry, in the eight spot in center, and then Escobar at short. Patrick Corbin is your starter on the mound. That game, because we live in a dystopian hellscape where the Washington Nationals are not viewable night to night on a consistent station, nor are they streamable, that game's on Mass in two tonight. How I will never get over this. It is 2022, and a Major League Baseball team worth a, maybe $2 billion? How much do we think the Nationals are worth? 
how much are the how much house can I afford? Different question, different Google search. How much are the Nationals worth? Something we could very well find out soon because I'm, they're up for sale potentially. Well, I'm going to take a guess. I'm going to say 2.5 billion. Allegedly, according to this article from 2019, which seems dated because that would put it pre-pandemic, but 2019, Forbes estimates in their annual valuation that the Nationals are $1.75 billion. Let me see if I can get a 2022 number. $2 billion. Forbes, they do annual, so that makes sense. I don't know why. Google, algorithm, come on. We got we to gotta get that algorithm so that it shows me the most recent. $2 billion. And they can't get on a consistent television station that also has streaming. I pay a decent amount for Fubo TV. And I mean, I mean, like, I'm not even cord cutting. I mean, I guess I technically am cord cutting in that case. But like, it's not like I'm illegally streaming using my parents' and aunts' and uncles' login for everything. Only for TNT because it's not on Fubo. What? Did I say that out loud? Um, but I I literally cannot watch the Nationals. And tonight, if you only got Masson, you can't either because they're on Masson too. But you know what you can do, Ryan? You can listen to them right here on the radio. Right here. What do you, more do you need? You got Charlie and Dave. Uh, they are coming up and well, in 10 seconds. Uh, Kareem Copeland, thanks to him for joining us here on the show. To Darius, who started behind the glass, and Ryan came in and finished the show. Thank you. I'm Craig Hoffman. This has been Overtime. Now it's baseball. Now. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.